Alright, good morning everyone. A few people have arrived in the last few minutes, so good morning to you all too. And today's a special day, as you know, because we're going to be spending the afternoon together, anyone who wishes. It's a leaders meeting, but all of you have valuable contributions to make. Whether you're a member or whether you're just an active participant, everyone is invited to participate with us this afternoon. So we will be meeting, we'll have lunch together from about 12 until 1, and then we will start our meeting. We're actually going to go to another location briefly for part of our meeting, and then we'll be back here to wrap up the meeting for the rest of the afternoon and we'll, until 5 o'clock. And what that means is uh, my message this morning will not be a full-blown sermon because I want us to spend time uh, eating lunch and having communion together and then getting down to business this afternoon. So I don't plan to preach for quite as long as I normally do. And what I do want to do is for us to look at Ephesians chapter 3, and there are some principles and lessons that we need to learn as the international church, the I3C, that we will be taking into consideration this afternoon as we meet, and taking into consideration as we think and pray and plan about what God wants to do in us and through us in 2011. So I'm going to actually read all of Ephesians chapter 3. It's actually not a very long chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and then we will go back and look at some specific points that I think the text speaks to us very clearly, very relevant for us as we move into this afternoon and then the next year of growth and health. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And now, listen to how Paul wraps up the chapter in the spirit of prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of the glory, His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, the reason I it was, I was kind of cheating when I said uh, it's not going to be a full-fledged sermon. Cheating, what I mean by that is, what I mean is there's, there's so much in this chapter that there's no possible way I could, in half an hour, preach and bring out the truth and the goodness and the richness of this passage. Maybe I should say, the Holy Spirit likely would not bring all of that out in a half hour message. It's just too much. And so what we're going to do is skim through it, but we are going to skim through it. Instead of just getting one or two verses, which was my original thought, just to look at verses 20 and 21, I realize that you can't have 20 and 21 without the rest of the chapter. So we'll, we'll go through it fairly quickly, and perhaps next year we will have a preaching series through the book of Ephesians. I think next year books that would be important for us as we consider the health of our body and the way we will grow... Philippians and Ephesians look to be two books that we ought to study through. That's not been decided yet. In fact, today, this afternoon, one of the things we'll talk about is what should be the meat of next year. What are we going to be fed on throughout the year? My suggestion is that it be Philippians and Ephesians. But today, we need to get a little bit of the meat out of Ephesians chapter 3. We're talking about the mystery. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is revealing to us a mystery, the Holy Spirit is doing it through Paul, that had been previously hidden or not fully comprehended in the thousands of years before in the history of God's kingdom. And this moment in time, this chapter of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and probably it was for other churches in that same region of what we call Turkey today, it was Asia Minor back then, that was the time, that was the turning point. He says, I'm going to make it clear. I want it to be known what this mystery really is. So, I want to know what the mystery is, and then we're going to look at this mystery is from whom, and it's through whom, and it's to whom, and it's for whom. Okay, that's good English, by the way. It's not from who, it's from whom. And it's not through who, through who, what? No, through whom. Uh, sometimes we have a tendency not to get that right, so just making that clear, since we're, most of us, in fact, am I, it's like one, two, three native English speakers here or something, so, this is good English, and if you want to speak and make people think that you're really smart, say whom, after your prepositions, to whom, through whom, for whom. Alright, but first we're talking about what, and we want to answer the question, what? What is the mystery? And we're going to see it very clearly. It's right here. I don't have to elaborate much because Paul states it clearly in the chapter. For example, in verse 3, it's a mystery made known to Paul by revelation. All right, so we know we're talking about a mystery, but we know that it's a mystery that has been revealed by revelation. And let's look a little bit further in verse 4 because we'll know who gave that revelation. It's a mystery made known to Paul by revelation and to God's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So we can trust Paul. We already know that. We can trust the Bible as God's inspired and authoritative word in our lives. 
And we can trust Paul as one who had been chosen by God to communicate the truth and intentions and will and purposes of God through the letters that he wrote. And Paul is saying, I did not make this up. This is from the Holy Spirit. What is the mystery? In verse 4 it says, it's the mystery of Christ. Alright, well, what about the mystery of Christ? Let's get some further information. In verse 6 it says, this mystery that is around or about the person and work of Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we know that this mystery has to do with the message of the gospel. We know that the message of the gospel is redemption, it's reconciliation with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. So we're talking about a mystery. Why was it a mystery in the Old Testament? Because they were looking ahead based on God's promises, based on the prophecies through his prophets. They were saying, we know that a Messiah is coming. We don't have all the details. We call this progressive revelation. He started back in Genesis chapter 3, where he says, I will send a Messiah. He doesn't use that word, but what do we know is going to happen? In Genesis 3, when sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve fall, and the promise of God is that he will send someone who will be wounded by the enemy, but he himself will crush the enemy, Satan, the servant. And so that's the first of 300, over 300 messianic prophecies. So the mystery is, well, we know that God's going to send a Redeemer. We know that God's going to send a Messiah, a Savior. We don't know exactly when, exactly how, exactly where, but as the mystery unfolds throughout the Old Testament, we start to get more information, more details about some of the circumstances under which the Messiah will come. Circumstances related to his family, circumstances related to his location of birth, circumstances related to other events surrounding his birth, circumstances related to his name and function. But it's still a mystery. If you don't have all of the information, there's still some mystery left. Paul comes along and says, I'm going to go ahead and finish this puzzle for you. I'm going to put it together so you can see the whole thing. And what he says is, the mystery is that Christ, the Messiah, is not just for the people of Israel. He is a Messiah for the nations. He's a Messiah for all groups of people and all segments of all societies and all people of all segments of all societies of all groups all over the world and throughout history. And this is the mystery that Paul is now completing for us. He's elaborating. Look at verse 8. It says, what is he doing? What is Paul doing to make this mystery no longer a mystery? This is his calling to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, to the degree that it is possible to understand who Christ is, and it's not possible to fully understand, because the riches concerning Christ are unsearchable. You can look and look and look. You'll never find all of the riches that there are to find. They're unfathomable. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and you will never fully comprehend the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure to what degree when we get to heaven we'll know all of that. But we'll know a lot more than we do here. And what Paul is doing is he's saying you can know a whole lot more now than you did before. So Paul brings us on a journey from the Old Testament mystery to a New Testament 
completion of the mystery to the degree that it is humanly possible and within God's will for us to know, because there's still more. And that only gets completed fully on the day that we enter into Christ's presence for all of eternity. So the mystery, summarizing this, it's a mystery that's from God, it's about God, it's about the Messiah, and it's about the fact that He is a Messiah who brings salvation to all nations and to people from all nations. Alright, so that's the mystery. It's the gospel mystery. It's what Christ did at the cross. But where did it come from? So the question is, from whom did this mystery come? Paul says in verse 2, This was a stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Who gave it? God. God gave... Stewardship means to entrust something to someone. God entrusted... It was God who entrusted to Paul this mystery, to be more fully revealed. So it's from God. In verse 3, it says, It was made known to me by revelation. And we already said that the revelation came, in verse 3 and 2, by the Holy Spirit. So God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, makes this mystery revealed, known to Paul. So from whom does this mystery come? From God. The person of Christ, the work of Christ at the cross, revealed more fully comprehensible to us because of the work of the Holy Spirit, especially through Paul in this particular case. In verse 4 he says again, by the Spirit. In verse 7 he says that he was a minister of the mystery. Right? When you say mystery, just think gospel. If I say mystery, think gospel. Think the person of the gospel, that's Jesus. Think the message of of the gospel. That's salvation, redemption, reconciliation to God through Christ at the cross. If I say mystery, think gospel. Paul says, I'm a minister of the mystery, the gospel, according to the gift of God's grace. He says it again. It's a gift from God, which was given to me, in verse 7, continuing, by the working of His power. His power, often in Scripture, when we talk about the power of God, we're saying it's the Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. That's the person of the Trinity who grants power to us and for us and through us. So the mystery, it's the message of the gospel. It's the person of the gospel. That's Jesus. That's what he's revealing. Who gave it? God gave it. So the question is, from whom does this mystery come? Better than that, from whom does the explanation of the mystery come? It comes from God. Through whom? Who is it that receives and channels the mystery? Who is it that's the vehicle of God in this world so that the mystery of the gospel becomes known to men and women from all people groups? Well, Paul says in verse 1, I, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm involved in this thing. In fact, I'm so involved that I've become a prisoner. And he literally means that. He was a prisoner because he was radically and sacrificially committed to the preaching of the gospel. So, in this case, Paul's saying, I, through whom? Through me. I am the one who is responsible to reveal the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. When you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says something very similar. He recognizes that he is the apostle, and others later recognize that he is specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. But, as Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians and the other churches in 
Asia Minor, he's not saying, it's me, it's only me, I'm the man. He's saying God has chosen me, but he's also chosen us. He never tries to take the gospel or the responsibility or the authority unto himself alone. He recognizes and challenges the churches, hey guys, brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and in whatever other churches you look at his other writings, it's not about me. It's about Christ, and we want Christ to be exalted, and therefore all of us, as the body of Christ, are responsible to get the glorious message of Christ to the nations. So when Paul says, I, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, it reflects to us his utter commitment to the gospel. He, he died, likely, as a martyr. The 11 remaining Apostles, disciples of Christ died as martyrs because they were so radically committed to getting the message of Jesus Christ to the nations, all ethnic groups, not just the Jews. So if we talk about radical commitment to the glorious message of Christ, it sounds a little bit like us, doesn't it? The I3C, what is our thinking? Three C's. Cherishing Christ. Completely. That's right. So what does that mean? It means... In order for Christ to be cherished, worshipped, honored, exalted, declared, proclaimed completely through me and through us, like Paul was doing, in order for that to happen, we need to be willing to make commitments that go beyond day to day. I have a commitment to go to work every day. My work happens to be ministry, but the fact is I need to be physically present in a certain place every day. I'm committed to that. But I'm not committed to showing up in an office every day in a radical way. I mean, somebody said, you want to continue to serve God, and therefore you have to continue to go to the office to do it, but if you keep going to the office, somebody's going to kill you. Your other option is just work at home. I'm going to go, yeah, I know, I like my office. I mean, it's got this really cool shade of green painted on the walls, and I've got some things hanging on the walls and some little knickknacks, and, and I really, it's a comfortable environment, and so I like to go there, but I don't think I'd be willing to die just so I could utilize that space to serve God. No, I'll stay at home, thank you very much. That's, that doesn't require a radical commitment. The radical commitment is to the message and the Lord of the message who is to be preached. Radical could mean taking us to our death. I don't think it means that. Sometimes radical means serving in our lives in ways that we don't often consider. Radical for us as a church next year may mean that we make some changes, we, we make some modifications, we, make, we have some expectations of people that we didn't have before, but not legalistically driven expectations. The expectations I'm talking about are, again, it has to do with cherishing Christ completely. I want him to be completely honored and worshipped through my life, in all areas of my life, and to and among all peoples of the world. Therefore, I joyfully choose to be a part of what God's doing at the I3C. So much so that if you can't do it joyfully... I think that I can speak on our behalf, on behalf of the leaders. We don't want you to come here, because if you're not coming joyfully, God has somewhere else for you to be united, somewhere else for you to be meeting, somewhere, some other group of people with whom you should be having fellowship. God doesn't want a bunch of miserable Christians. It's not because we speak English, and that's cool, and therefore you come here even though you don't like it very much, you like the English, and that's all. Go study English somewhere else. Go to a school and study English. That's what Alice is a great teacher of English. Go study with her. But don't come here if that's the only reason you want to come. Come here joyfully because you sense that the Holy Spirit 
is at work in us and through us to get the gospel message to the international community of Kurichiba and to the ends of the earth. So your radical commitment needs to be a joy-driven, grace-based commitment for being with us and being among us. If you have that, then we can say, hey guys, you know what? We don't have any full-time staff. All of us are volunteers. So therefore, we all need to help a little bit. Maybe a lot. What can you do? What are your gifts? If you don't know them, we have ways to find them. We have our ways. You guys don't get it, because that's like a German speaking, he's torturing somebody. Sorry if I have any Germans here, it's kind of a whole World War II kind of thing, never mind. There are ways, there are mechanisms to help you discern what your spiritual gifts are, and then we can get you plugged in. And it has to do with leading worship, it has to do with teaching and preaching. You know what, because we're not uh, clergy driven, anybody can preach that is gifted to preach and will study and prepare and bring a message. Any of you that think, you know, maybe God's gifted me to do that, then let's try it out. You can teach a Sunday school class. If that goes well, you can preach. It may not be worship. It may not be preaching. Your spiritual gift may be serving. We need people to serve. We need things set up before we start. We need transitions to take place quickly. If we stay in this location, we got like five minutes between Sunday school and the worship service to make our transition. And we, humanly speaking, that is almost impossible But if there are more of us, and each one knows what they're supposed to do, we can do it. So there are a lot of ways for us to be involved next year joyfully. And your radical commitment needs to be a joyful commitment. When we talk about this doxological drive, when we talk about this cherishing Christ completely, it means that we're willing to do it no matter the cost. And we're willing to do it joyfully, even though the cost may seem great. So think about this. As we plan this afternoon, and as we get ready for next year, what is the great cost that you can joyfully pay in order for Christ to be exalted, cherished in you, through you, in us, among us, and for the nations? So we've got the mystery. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus Christ did at the cross. It's how that can be applied into the lives and ethnic groups all over the world so that Our glorious king may have new worshipers. And when we bring new worshipers into the family, when he does it through us, the more diverse the family, the greater the glory God gets. And so I don't think when we get to heaven, now this this is supposition. This is not something I can find clearly in scripture. But the fact that Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, talk about the multitudes containing people from every different tribe of tongue and language and nation worshiping before the throne of the Lamb. I think what that means is not that everybody started speaking the same language, but that everybody became capable of understanding all other languages. Because the diversity that the ethnicity represents and the multilinguicity... Okay, see, now if we're speaking in Portuguese, I would sound like... It has something to do with the Shohasku, because linguicity sounds like you're talking about multiple linguistas, which I think everybody knows that sausage. So I'm talking about many different languages. It's fun to be able to make jokes in two different languages, go back and forth like that. All right. The point is that the lamb gets more glory because there are many people of many different colors, ethnic groups, and backgrounds, and segments of society in many different languages. 
And we will continue to use those languages. Some of us will be able to worship Him in multiple languages. That's going to be great. And He's going to feel more worthy, more worshipped through us when we do that. So it's the mystery is the gospel from whom? Well, the mystery and the revelation of the mystery came from God. It came through whom? Paul. But also us. That was the whole point at the beginning of this point. It's not just for Paul. That's why we're radically committed to cherish Christ completely. We get the baton. It's been handed from generation to generation, from one people group to another. It's gotten here. It's Now it's us. And we take the baton. We carry it on. The gospel message to the next location that God wants us to plant a church. Or the next people group that God wants us to reach. So it's through us. This stewardship in verse 2 that was given is something that God has entrusted, not just to Paul, but to us. He's entrusted something of eternal value. In fact, it is without, it is so filled with worth and value that it's priceless. And He's entrusted that to us. It makes me want to fall on my knees and cry in repentance. And I can't even think of having done anything wrong at this exact moment. I'm not in sin right now that I know of. But it makes me want to fall down and go, God, I'm so unworthy to have received a priceless trust, a stewardship. I'm so unworthy to be able to participate with you in the mission to get the message, that gem, to other people and to other nations. So thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your love and grace, and thank you for redeeming me and allowing me to participate in that mission. In verse 8, he says, to me this grace was given. And then in verse 10, he says, so that, and, and don't worry, in just a minute we're going to get to the so that's. I love the so that's, and you guys know that I do. And you know that this whole church is about the so that's. And, and this is no spirit, um, spiritual pride on our part, but a lot of churches do all of the things, but they're not doing it for the ultimate so that. And so we're going to get to the so that's in just a minute. In verse 10 he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. See, through the church, all throughout scripture, when we, when we look at the use of the word church in the New Testament, although we find local groupings of believers, it's not as we understand today. And the whole question of membership for them we could, in a sense, say it was non-existent. It was informal. It was based on their affinity. It was based on their geographic location. They would get together regularly because God said, do it. Acts chapter 2 in particular. Get together. Meet together regularly. Do these things. Apostles teaching. Remember that passage? So we're committed to the teaching of Scripture, is what it's saying. We're committed to fellowship and prayer. In other places in Scripture, we're committed to the great commandment, to loving God and loving our neighbor. We're committed to the great commission. Helping people from all unreached people groups love God and love their neighbors. Experience a saving love of Christ. So, what we're talking about is not any one local church that has a name, a building, a membership list. That's not what church means when he says through the church. He's talking about all of those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and who have been invited into the family of God. So, we call ourselves the I3C, the International Community Church of Kurichiba. Who are we? We're not determined because we have a list of members. We do have, actually. And some of them I don't think I've ever met. 
And others of you come every Sunday and aren't members. You're actively involved. So we're not going to say you're on the list or you're not. And therefore you get to participate or not. We're going to say, has God brought you here? Has God gifted you to provide or to contribute something to the dynamic of this local manifestation of the body of Christ so that we grow, both in terms of quantity, we're enriched, we're encouraged, we become more like Christ because you are among us, and we grow numerically, expansively to reach the international community because you are here among us. When Paul said, through the church, in verse 10, so that... Through the church, he's saying, so that through us, all of us, the manifold wisdom and the riches of Christ may be known. That's all of us. So this through whom? It's not just Paul. And it's not just the ones who look like super spiritual people that we just stand in awe of and wonder how they can be so committed and so disciplined in their faith and so gregarious in inviting people into the family and sharing Christ and living it out, the message. It's not just for the full-time pastors. The clergy that, unfortunately, historically, we have had a tendency to put on, literally, a pedestal higher up than the rest of us. You notice, although this one's only, what, 10 centimeters high? If I wanted to, I could stand 10 centimeters higher than all of you. And what would that communicate to you? I'm the man. I'm more important. I got the platform. you got to listen to me, because what I say is what matters. I don't like that. I don't like the division the separation between those who are considered clergy and those who are considered laity. We're all in this together. We're all the body of Christ. We're either all clergy or we're either all laity, and there's biblical support for that, or we're neither of that, but we're all in it together. Whatever it is, we're, we all are it. We have different functions. Some are called to full-time ministry. It doesn't make them more important. It doesn't mean they should be standing up higher. Unless it's a question of convenience, because there's so many people in the audience that the ones in the back can't see unless they stand up high. It's the modern day version of that is put them on a video camera so that everybody can see. I have no problems with that. I have problems with the historical spirit of separating the clergy and the lady. Alright? So, that's a whole different message and we can talk about why that's been detrimental to the church. And we can talk about why that encourages us to say we won't be like that. We're all in it together. The body has received gifts that have been distributed at the Holy Spirit's pleasure for the building up of the body which means our own growth in the image of Christ and the expansive growth of new people and new ethnic groups coming into the body of Christ. So it's the mystery. We know what that is. We know from whom it comes. We know through whom. It's all of us. To whom? You guys know the answer to that. Who is the gospel message being taken to? To whom? All right, see, I, now i got to speak correctly because I told you guys we had to speak. To whom is the gospel message being taken? The Gentiles, which means all of the non-Jews in addition to, not in place of, not instead of, but in addition to the ethnic and religious and national group, the Jews that we look at historically in the Old Testament, in addition to them, is for all peoples. Paul says in verse 1, why does he have this stewardship? Why does he have this prisonership? Why is he a prisoner of Christ? It's for the sake of the gospel on behalf of the Gentiles. That's what it says in verse 1. He has been called to deliver a message to the Gentiles. This stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, in verse 2 he says, was for you in Ephesus who are Gentiles reading this letter. He was called by Christ 
we are called by Christ. He was called, we'll get to the, the reason for it, and we've been called for that same reason. And he was called to take it to the Gentiles, as we are called to take the message to the Gentiles. Look at verse 8. He's been called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's preaching to what today we call unreached people groups. That's what drove Paul. He was radically committed to taking the message of the gospel to places and people and ethnic groups that had not had contact with it. They hadn't heard the message. That hasn't changed. That should drive us. That's why when we say cherishing Christ completely, it's not just doxological, it's missiological. Christ will not be cherished completely until he is cherished by people from all ethnic groups. And right now, if we were to take the, what the, the best missiologists and anthropologists tell us about the way the world is divided up ethnically, you can find a couple of different possibilities. One of them would say that there are about 24,000 ethnic groups around the world. An ethnic group is a group of people that have a shared history and culture and societal mores or rules. They have a shared language, and they normally have a proper name. And so if you start to look around, it's not Brazilians. That's not an ethnic group. We are a national group called Brazilians. If you look in Brazil and say, who are the ethnic groups in Brazil? Who are some of the ethnic groups in Brazil? They have names. Who are they? All right, there are Germans that don't just represent the country of German, but Germanic culture and ethnicity. Chinese that represent varying ethnic groups of Chinese. There are a thousand different Chinese ethnic groups. They're all called Chinese because nationally they're part of China, but there are multiple, many Chinese ethnic groups. And we have Japanese, which are more homogeneous. That actually represents a country and an ethnic group typically. There's some variety, but not as much as in China, for example. Gypsies. There are different kinds of Arabs, ethnically Arabs. Or we might have to look at the religious groups and say that Muslims in Brazil that represent different ethnic groups. What did you say, Jumana? Italians. Who? Italians. Italians. Brazil is rich with national and with ethnic heritage, culture. And those are the groups of people in Brazil that we are responsible to reach. So take the 24,000 groups all around the world. You can take the Komarim in Indonesia. You can take the Taru in Nepal. You can take all of the different types of Arab groups or Turkic groups. You can take the hundred and out of the out of the 252-ish tribes in Brazil, about 92 or 93 are still considered unreached. When you start piling up all of the unreached groups, you get to about 8,000. What that means is, out of 24,000 ethnic groups in the world, a third of them are still unreached with the gospel. And that represents huge numbers of people. If you, if you find these ethnic groups, you put them in their geographic or geopolitical context, you're talking about over 4 billion people. Nearly a third of the world's population identifies with Christianity as a religious preference or an ideological or cultural preference. I'm not saying all of those are genuine believers. Maybe about 10% of the world's population are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, which is pretty phenomenal. You're still talking about something like 680 million people. That's 10% of the world's population, believers. You add up the ones who are Christian culturally, nominally, 
And so about a third of the world's population. So it's well over two billion people. But that other two thirds don't know the gospel. And about half of those, so one third of the world's population, are people that are part of people groups and geopolitical contexts that historically have not had access to the gospel. We're talking about 8,000 people groups. We're talking about between one and a half and two billion people who have not had legitimate access to the gospel message. They, for them, it's still a mystery. For them, they don't have a clue who Jesus really was, what he did, and how they can be reconciled to God. So, when we look at the to whom does the message go, to whom is the mystery to be revealed, it's already been revealed to us. The baton has been passed to us. It's our turn to take the message to these unreached people groups, and the people in those unreached people groups, as a biblical and strategic mandate and priority, which means, as we because we're small, we don't have a lot of policies yet on paper. In fact, I don't hope we, we don't have to necessarily have them on paper, but we all need to know what they are, which means they'll probably end up not on paper, but in our computer somewhere. And that's fine. And we need to make lots of backups so that we don't ever forget who we are, what we're about, and what our priorities are. But hopefully it's so ingrained in our DNA that we'll never forget. Which means that if there's two billion people representing 8,000, one-third of the world's ethnic groups that haven't had access to the gospel, and we have a biblical, strategic mandate and priority to reach them, then we as a church, in order to cherish Christ completely, ought to be thinking radically. We ought to be thinking, for example, tithes and offerings that come in. What percentage of that should we just be thinking, God has been so generous to us. He saved our stinky selves from hell. Through the death of His Son on the cross, there is no generosity that goes beyond that. So how can we reflect to the nations the generosity that Christ has reflected to us? I, I know. How about we don't give 10% to cross-cultural missions and spend the other 90 on us? How about we give 90% to cross-cultural missions and other related activities that have to do with social Issues, issues of justice, humanitarian sometimes, but preferably among people that have never had access to the gospel. And maybe we can survive with just 10% of whatever comes in. How do we do that? Well, maybe, maybe we can't pay somebody full time. Maybe the giftings that are needed, we don't pay somebody to provide. We come up among ourselves with a list of who can do what, and we do it. And maybe it means we don't spend a lot of money on buildings. And maybe 90% is too much. Maybe next year we go 50-50. We'll try to be as generous as we can, but the year after that, let's do 60-40, and then 70-30, and then 80-20, and then 90. That's maybe how you have to think sacrificially, radically, like Paul did, in order for us to show how much we cherish Christ, and in order for Him to be cherished among the nations, in order for the gospel message to be preached to whom? All of the Gentiles, all of the unreached people groups. And then finally... The mystery, we know what it is. We know from whom, through whom, and to whom. But there's another question that we ought to ask, and that is for whom? For whom do we do all of this? We don't do it for ourselves. We don't do it for those unreached people groups. We don't do it for people who haven't yet heard. In a sense, we do, but remember that question? So that, or that affirmation? So that, so... 
Our final question is, for whom do we do this? For whom do we take the message of Christ, the glorious message of the gospel, to the nations? For whom do we do that? It's not for the nations. It's for Christ. Cherishing Christ completely. He loves us. He died for us. He was generous with us. He desires that we be generous with this message and that we take it to the nations for His glory. So look at these verses in this passage that give us a clue about the reason for which we take the mystery to the nations. Verse 9. Why are we doing it? To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He gets through this whole message of getting the mystery known and then communicated to the nations. And he says it's for this reason, okay, where is he going with that? Get the message to the nations, but that's not the reason. He says, for this reason, then he starts into this prayer that finishes with the ultimate, so that. And it's verses 20 and 21, which we'll get to in a minute. But when he says, for this reason, he's pointing us forward and says, I'm just about to tell you what it is. On the way, he says, look at some of the so that's in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So that, in verses 17 through 19. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then finally, verse 20 20, so that to Him, it doesn't say so that in the verses they are implied, so that to Him, Jesus Christ, God, be the glory. In the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. So for whom do we take the message to the nations? For the glory of God. It's our doxological drive and it's our mystological manifestation of that which fills us and drives us. So if we say for whom, you could use a little for and say the Gentiles. But you need to use all caps, F-O-R, the glory of Christ. That's ultimately what we are all about. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. It's almost like, in a sense, summing up Colossians 1.16, which is the one that talks about it's from him and through him and to him. All things were created For Him, from Him, through Him, to Him, for His glory. That's what we're about. If we make a decision this afternoon, that should be driving the decision that we make. That Christ be exalted and cherished in us, among us, and through us, to the nations, for His glory. The tragedy with, specifically with verse 20, is how many of us know verse 20 really, really well? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. We love that verse. And then we pray and ask him to do a miracle in our own lives. Because I don't feel good today. I have a stomach ache. Or because, no, seriously, I'm dying of cancer. Or there's some relational 
trauma that's taking place. Or there's some great need, and we love to apply it here. We need money, God. And so we pray, and then now to you, who's able to do far more abundantly than we can figure out, God, we can't think of how much money you should give us, but you know, and it's probably way more than we think we need. We invert it. We distort it. And it becomes all about us. The reason he does far more than we can think or ask is right there in the text, which you can't divide in the original Greek. There is no, okay, stop here, now go to verse 21, which is totally different. It's all run together. The reason he does abundantly more than we can think or ask is so that, implying, God will be glorified through the church, that's us, and through Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Well, praise the Lord that some of the generations 2,000 years ago got it, and they passed it to the next generation, in fact, generations in other ethnic groups, and then they passed it to other generations in other ethnic groups. Some of them continued to pass to their own generations in their own ethnic groups, sorry, and some of them didn't. But the fact is, it got to us because somebody got it. Christ is worthy to be exalted among all nations. So we do that. We take the message to the nations for the good of the people of the nations and for the glory of Christ. Do not ever read your Bible selectively and take out the so that. Don't take verse 20 without verse 21. And if you're praying verse 20, it better have something to do with verse 21. And not just because you want or need something. Or we want or need something collectively. What we want is that Christ be exalted. That Christ be cherished in all areas of our lives and among all peoples of the world. So, to Him be the glory in the church. That's us. How do we do that in our lives? How do we do that collectively as the I three C? How do we make sure that that's happening among the international community of Kuritiba? How do we make sure it's happening among the nations? That's our goal this afternoon. That's what we're taking into consideration when we plan for 2011. From here on out, we want Christ to be glorified in the generations that come after us in the I3C, in the generations that come from now on in the international community, and in the generations that come among all unreached people groups. So how do we do it? How do we be that church? How do we manifest our love for Christ in that way, that this way that Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3? If you would like to contribute to the way that we manifest the glory of Christ, that we proclaim the mystery of Christ to this international community and to the nations in 2011, hang out with us this afternoon. That's great. All right, Father, we... Just took a quick tour through Ephesians chapter 3, and I hate that we can't go deeper. And so, maybe we'll do that next year. But God, the message is clear. I believe it is clear. Even if we just read it one time in a couple of minutes, the message is clear. That everything that we are, and everything that we should be about, the reason that we exist as a local body of believers, is so that the glorious, magnificent message of reconciliation with the God of the universe through the completed work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. What that message needs to get to the nations. That's what we're about. If we're not, then that's what we want to be about. If we're only partly about it, we want to be more about it. In 2011, Father, we want to be increasingly about that. We want to reflect biblical kingdom values that we find here in Ephesians chapter 3 as we pray and plan this afternoon. 
May the nations be reached. May people be benefited because they will spend eternity with Christ. And may the so that be fulfilled through us. So that Christ will be exalted. That's our desire, Father. That's our job. In our lives and among our nations, you be glorified in 2001. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Your precious name. Your glorious name. Your powerful and sovereign name. Amen.